please join me this morning as we uh, begin. Well, we're going to be in the book of First Samuel this morning. And for those of you who've been waiting since November, we get part two. We get to hear what happens to the ark. I know some of you probably already read ahead. But just to, as a reminder for those of you who don't remember where we left off in November, uh, if we look back at chapter 4 in November, we'll see that the Philistines, as you remember, they, they came up from the coast and they camped at a place called Aphek. And while they were there, the Israelites came and camped at Ebenezer, and there was a battle between the two, between the Philistines and the Israelites. Well, the, the Israelites were defeated soundly, and so as they went back to their camp, they, they were puzzled about why the Lord had allowed them to be defeated. And so they figured the best thing for them to do would to be to grab the Ark of the Covenant and march that out, and their victory would be assured. Well, the Ark, carried by Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, priests that were known throughout the land for their, for their blasphemies and their blatant immorality, and not for their devotion to the Lord, led the ark out. If you remember back in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, their father Eli had been warned by a prophet that judgment was coming unless they turned. Well, that judgment arrived in chapter 4 as the ark of the covenant was captured and Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle. As you remember, when the news reached Eli, who was sitting at the gate of the city, he fell over backwards, and because of his great weight, he died. And this chapter concludes with the daughter-in-law of Eli giving birth, and, and in her dying breath, she names her son Ichabod. The glory has departed. And she said, as her last words, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark 
of God to Ekron. But as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought, us, brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of of the mice ravaging the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send away the people and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new carts to milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the carts, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and place in a box at its side the figures of gold, which are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So the men did so. They took two milk calves, cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua Beshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifice sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day 
in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with the great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiretjerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiretjerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Well, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray to our Lord that he might guide our time together this morning. Father, as we come before you, as we turn our faces to you this morning, Father, we ask that you will guide us. We ask that you will uh, reveal your truth to us. Father, we ask that you will allow us to behold wonderful things from your word. May we see your glory in the pages here, and may we hear of your truth, that it might inform our minds that we might act and live in a way that honors you. And so, Father, use me this morning as a broken vessel. Communicate your truth, Father, and may we behold the glory of your Son, even this morning. Amen. Well, this morning, as, as we begin, I'd like to start us in, in another Old Testament book, just to give us a model and a picture of what it should look like when a sinful human being encounters a holy God. And so if you would briefly with me this morning, turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And we're briefly just going to look at the response of Isaiah as he encounters a holy God. And with Isaiah's response as, as a model, we can better evaluate 1 Samuel. And hopefully, then we can more clearly understand how these things apply to us. So join with me in Isaiah 6. It reads this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and, and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook with the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraph flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin has been atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And as you see this magnificent picture of God in his temple lifted up as, his, as the train of his robe is filling 
the temple. Isaiah is brought there. And we see as he beholds God, as he beholds the majesty of God's holiness, he, he sees God and his immediate response is to cry out, woe is me. His immediate response as he sees God is he is completely undone. He pronounces upon himself a curse of doom and his destruction. He is undone by the holiness of God. In the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, he becomes acutely aware of his own sin and the sin of the people around him. It's then that an angel brings a coal from the altar. Note that the coal was too hot even for an angel to touch. And as the angel touches Isaiah's lips, you can imagine the searing results. And it was the atoning for sin and the taking away of guilt. And after the cleansing of his lips, Isaiah is ready to be a messenger to carry God's word to Israel. For here in this vision, we see the incredible grace and mercy of God on display. We can be astounded that a holy God should choose to reveal himself to a sinful man. And even more than that, we should be amazed that God should choose to set his name upon a people and to dwell with them in their midst. Throughout the scriptures, the Lord reveals himself through various means. But in these last days, he has revealed himself through his son, through whom he created the world. And it is this son that is the exact radiance of the glory of the father and the exact imprint of his nature. And this son, after providing purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of his father. And we must not forget that the thrice holy God called his people to be holy because he is holy. And we see in the Lord's holiness and his sovereign power and display in 1 Samuel, may, as we look at this passage this morning, may we be reminded afresh of the great calling to which we are called. May we be uh, once again amazed at the abundant treasure of grace available to us through Christ. And may we walk worthy of the calling to which we are called. Samuel chapter 5. Let's briefly, with this background in mind... Let's walk through this passage and see the glory of Christ, the glory of God being revealed here in the Old Testament. As we get to chapter 5, we see that the ark is on a victory tour of sorts. And this chapter 5 is divided into two sections. The first section, uh, the, the victory tour focuses on Dagon. And in the second section, the victory tour focuses on the other five cities in this Philistine world. So as we get, look at verses 1 through 5, it's customary in the ancient Near East that when you conquered a people group or a group of people, that you would bring their gods and their religious artifacts and you would bring them into the temple and they would be proudly displayed there as, as a victory celebration. It would be, my God is more superior to yours, that's why your gods are in our temple. 
And so as the Ark of the Covenant was taken there and placed beside Dagon, the priests were in for a surprise when they showed up the following morning. As the, as the, the statue, the idol of Dagon, was on its face before the Ark. Well, you can imagine they, the priest probably looked around and was wondering, like, well, did you guys fear the earthquake last night? And they began to wonder what was going on here. They righted their statue, carefully searching the temple to see who the practical joker was, right? And then they set up the temple, or the, the, their idol back where it belongs. Now, it was the next morning that their, their, their god was found face downward again in front of the ark, but this time the head and hands were cut off. And at first, you might think that this, stat- this idol was bowing down in worship to the Ark of the Covenant. But if you think about it, the Lord isn't one who simply adds other gods to his pantheon. It's not like he needs help managing all of the affairs of mankind, and so he, uh, he assembles a group, group of gods around him. No. It appears that this posture is an act of military conquest. If you think about it, this event actually seems to foreshadow the encounter between David and Goliath. If you remember from acting this out back in your Sunday school days, remember around and around, around his head, the stone went, and as, he, as, as David slung the stone at the giant, it hit the giant in the forehead, and the giant came tumbling down, face downward. And then as you remember, David went over, and you may or may not have acted this out in Sunday school, (laughs) David then beheads the giant with his own sword. That's what's happening here. God has, Yahweh has defeated Dagon. He's lying prone, prostrate on the ground, and his head and hands have been cut off. Isaiah 42.8 describes this by saying, I am the Lord, that is my name, My glory I give to none other, nor my praise to carved idols. The Lord does not share his glory with the carved stones. Lord's sovereign power is on display here in the temple of Dagon. And it's not finished here. This is the beginning. So he starts with the God. And then as this episode concludes, though, the writer gives And once again displays his subtle brilliance in verse 5. As he describes the tradition of the priest of Dagon stepping over the threshold of the temple. The humiliation of their God before the Lord becomes a part of the normal priestly ritual as they enter into the temple. As they hop over the threshold, they are in fact reminding themselves of the glory of God. Right? It's also as if the writer is saying, also to those who don't believe this story, maybe it's an embellishment or maybe you're making this up. If you don't believe that Dagon was utterly humiliated by the ark, just look at the awkward priests entering into the temple. You can see it. It's no exaggeration. It's part of the ritual now. Well, the defeat of the Philistine God was just the beginning. And the rest of this chapter, verses 6 through 12, the Lord begins to afflict the people of Dagon. The book of Hebrews tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in this passage, we just get a brief glimpse of what that looked like for these people. Verse 6 states that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people 
of Ashdod. And in contrast with the handless Dagon, the hand of the Lord was powerful and it afflicted and terrified the Philistines with tumors. These tumors were swellings that, that affected the neck and armpits and groin. They spread quickly through the city and into the surrounding areas. Disease is most likely caused by the spread of the rodents that are described in chapter 6, verse 5. And, and based on the description and the language used to describe the tumors, many scholars tend to think that this might have been a form of the bubonic plague, the source of all of this panic and terror. However, the narrator simply confirms that it was the hand of the Lord that was heavy there in Ashdod. The leaders of the city immediately recognized that the ark could not remain there in the midst of their pandemic. And it's most likely, well, as they called for all of the other leaders to gather, it's most likely that as they gathered during their pandemic, they were careful to maintain proper social distance, and undoubtedly they wore masks. But as they gathered together, these five lords, they asked the question that is profound in its simplicity. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? While this is a simple question, it has profound significance. It gathers serious weight as we begin to remember what this ark is all about. You remember the ark of the covenant was a symbol of God's continued presence abiding with his people. The ark was a symbol of the sacred space where the Lord communicated with his people. The ark was the means through which the Lord provided and protected his people. It was the place where once a year the blood of a sacrifice was offered to atone for the sins of Israel. And the ark was the place where peace and fellowship with God were restored. And as we consider their question, a profound one indeed, they're really asking the question, what do we do when we encounter the glory of God? They were not ignorant of the power of the ark. And if you remember chapter 4, when the Philistines heard that the ark had come into the camp, they were dismayed because they had heard of the awesome power of the ark. They believed that their doom was sure, but they fought anyway. And under the hand of the Lord, we can see that these Philistines are as easily toppled as their God. And as they ask the right question, they get the wrong answer. Because instead of bowing before the ark and the creator of the universe, they seek to, to rid themselves of this thing that is plaguing them. And in this meeting, they say, who's going to take the ark? And the men from Gath says, we'll take it. We're giants here. We got this. And as they flee the presence of the ark, you can begin to see that as the ark goes to Gath, they begin to rationalize and explain away the power of God. The plague could have come from the ark. It could have been a coincidence too. 
And so as they, they move the ark, it's a test. Well, will the plague continue to follow the ark? Or is it just a, a thing for Ashdod? If they just move the ark far enough, they might be able to rule out some of the causes of the plague. But as you see in verse 9, the, the ark's stay in Gath is even shorter than it was in Ashdod. And the ark quickly moves to Ekron. By verse 10, the ark is already on its way there. The city is already in a uproar, even before the ark shows up. The people are terrified. They're crying out, why are you bringing this here? Have you brought the God of Israel to kill us and our people? As the ark moves from place to place, you'll notice that there's an escalation in the language. Note verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy. He terrified and afflicted them. Verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And verse 11, there was a deathly panic because the hand of the Lord was heavy there. The chapter ends with the cries of the Philistines ascending into heaven. They have been under the hand of the Lord and they've been broken before him. And in chapter 16, we see the ark is returned. We'll divide this into three sections. And the first section is the advice that the priests give. And so after having survived seven months, in the lands, the Philistines had had enough, and they decided they must get rid of the ark. You will notice the number seven, oftentimes it's a number of completion in the Bible. But the suffering from its presence, the people consult the priests. And as they ponder the next step, they ask the same question that they asked in chapter five. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Notice the change in language. It's no longer the God of Israel, but it's the Ark of the Lord. And they're using capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the covenant name for Yahweh. And so as the priests are asked this question again, uh, it's often too easy to think of pagan priests in the Old Testament as, as simpletons. Is not knowing any better. But these priests, they begin to display some understanding as they attempt to get rid of the ark. Notice, uh, they have this idea, they understand that they've transgressed against a deity. And they understand that, that when you transgress, that there has to be some form of atonement. And they believe that finding this source of atonement is the quickest way to get back to peace and safety. They're aware that they've somehow transgressed against the God of the Israelites and that they may, must make some kind of offering. They suggest the following. Uh, they suggest that if the people have the right guilt offering, then they can, first of all, be healed from their infirmities. If they offer the right guilt offering, it will be clear that they are Afflicted because they were afflicted by the God of the ark. And so the people, as they hear this advice, they ask another profound question. What is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And this question, is this question not the same question that every human 
must answer? The Bible makes it clear that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And one day, every human will give an account to their creator. We're reminded in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, For if we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, the Lord says, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And the question that these Philistines ask is, what is the guilt offering that we should bring? Well, the question is one that we should ask ourselves as well. When you are called to give an account of how you have spent your life, what will you say? Will you say, well, to the Lord of that question, well, I was a good person. I didn't really do that many bad things. I did more good than bad. I was generally kind to people. I gave away the money and the resources I had to good causes. I I helped people when they were in need. I was generally a good person. But our hope this morning, and even as we sing, our hope is that you understand that there is only one answer to this question. His name is Jesus, and he came to this earth with the sole purpose of glorifying his Father by fulfilling the law, by becoming the ultimate sacrifice, and dying on a cross so that anyone who would believe in him might have everlasting life. Whoever believes in Jesus can answer this question with great confidence. What is the guilt offering you bring? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who took away the sins of those who would believe. He took them upon himself. He suffered God's wrath as if he committed the sins himself. He did this so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. He experienced the full wrath, the full measure of the wrath of God on the cross, so that all who believe might experience the full measure of his righteousness. Those who are believed are saved from God, by God, for the glory of God, and they will forever sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling the weight of your guilt, do not delay, but turn in faith to the one who can save, the one who is able to save even to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Well, the the Philistine priest's response probably was rather different than that. In regards to the question, they suggest, well, what should we do with our guilt? What should we give him? Well, let's give him some golden things. Gold's valuable. And so they're like, we'll make some golden things. And the people, they, they make these guilt offerings from each of the five rulers. So it should be something valuable. It should be for each person who has transgressed. Uh, it should be representative and it should be in proportion to the offense committed. And so their hope was offering a substantial enough in the gift to the correct deity to remove the plague that was ravishing their land. And so the Lord, as the Lord sent tumors and mice, the priest said, well, since he sent them to us, we'll make golden images of them and we'll send them back to him. 
hoping that he would be satisfied and remove the tumors and the mice that were plaguing them and their lands. In addition to this guilt offering, the priests also recognize that they must do something else. They they recognize that they must give glory to the God of Israel. This statement by Dagon's priests reintroduces a motif that began in chapter 2, verse 29 and 30. As you remember, Eli, he was accused of giving more weight or honor to his sons than to the Lord. And the Lord, in response, he declared that those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And we see this thread continue in Eli's death. When he fell backward off his seat, and because of his weight, he was killed by his own heaviness. This idea, one scholar says, the the word kavod in verse 5, the semantic range of this word includes weight, honor, and glory. And though give glory is accurate, it would be equally accurate to render it as give weight or give honor to Israel's God. We have an elaborate use of a key word in order to understand the importance of giving weight, honor, and glory to Israel's God. End quote. You probably noticed the irony in the Philistines' priests are looking to give kavod, weight, or honor to Israel's God as a result of the capture of the ark, which caused Eli's daughter-in-law to name their son Ichabod, or Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. One group refused to give glory to God, and so the ark was removed, and the other group seeks to give glory to God, so the ark will be removed. So as the priests present their plan to the people, it seems that the people might not have been fully convinced of their plan. And so the priests once again allude to Israel's past and warn these Philistines not to harden their hearts like the Egyptians did. This warning reminds them that as Pharaoh hardened his heart after the first plague, if he had simply allowed them to go, he would have saved him himself and people from and his people from nine more plagues. The priests believed that the Lord would continue to add plague upon plague upon them until the ark left, just as God did to Egypt. And so they encouraged them, hey, hey, we don't want nine more of these things. Let's just be done with it now. We've suffered enough. And though it seems that it, not everyone's still convinced that this is the best plan, they offer a, another way of testing to see if the God of Israel is actually behind these events. The priests devise this elaborate plan where they, they, they grab an, uh, the ark and put it on a cart, a brand new cart that's never been used before, and, and they go ahead and grab two milk cows, cows who have never pulled a cart before, cows whose first instinct is to find their calves, right? And they're going to put these milk cows before a cart and take them away from their calves and harness them to the cart. And the idea is that if the ark were to return, pulled by these milk cows to where it's to go, the cows would have to act non-cow. They would have to go against their nature. They would have to do things that, that cows don't normally do. The people agreed that this, was, this test was of sufficient difficulty that it would be an appropriate test to see if, 
Yahweh could direct these cows back home. If they didn't go home, it wasn't Yahweh. The cows did what normal cows do. The plague was not from God. But the priests, to be sure, as they, sent the, as they packed up the carts, they have the ark, they have their box, they have their golden things in the box, and they send the cows off. But to be sure, the, Lord, the lords of the Philistines plan to follow behind this cart to make sure it gets back to the correct place. You can imagine the procession uh, as they head to the nearest town of Beshemesh, right? And we see that as these cows, lowing as they went, followed by a group of priests and the lords of the Philistines, it was once again the, the Lord humbling these priests as they walked behind these cows that were led back to, well, led by God back to Beth Shemesh. So following the advice, verse 12 says, uh, the procession begins the journey. You can imagine the interesting spectacles, the cows lowing as they went, headed off in the direction, seven miles uphill to Beth Shemesh. The narrator uses the phrase, they turn neither to the right nor to the left, a phrase that oftentimes describes obedience to describe the journey of these milk cows pulling this heavy cart. Phrase describes not only, well, the phrase usually describes complete obedience to the Lord, right? Someone who's obeying the Lord, they turn neither to the right hand nor to the left hand. And in this passage, this phrase is doubly used as it describes how the cows did not waver along the road. And it also describes how the cows walked in obedience to their maker. Once again, the Philistine procession watched from a distance to confirm that the ark had been returned and not ending up on the side of the road someplace. When they had confirmed it, they realized that they could return home to their land. And as they returned back home, they were hoping maybe the tumors, maybe the mice, maybe this cart thing had worked. Well, in verses 10 through 18, we can see that the, the people of Beshemesh were out in the town reaping their fields. And they, they are excited to see the ark. That's an understatement. They were ecstatic to see the ark. When the Israelites saw the ark, they re- rejoiced at its return. And they quickly broke down the cart. They quickly bro- uh, pulled down the, the guilt offering. They quickly pulled down the ark. And they offered up the two cows as a sacrifice. It's a perfect place for the ark to show up, this Beth Shemesh, because Beth Shemesh, if you remember all the way back to when we went through uh, the book of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, when it was allotted to the people, it was allotted to the Levites. And so these were the men who would have known how to handle the ark. And this section, all the way to verse 18, ends with a formal recounting of the guilt offering for each of the cities of the Philistines. Now in verses 19 through chapter 1 verse or chapter 7 verse 1 we would hope that the return of the ark would be an occasion for celebration it would be a positive note but we are not afforded that luxury in verses verse 19 the lord strikes down 70 men because they improperly handled the ark of the lord the people of Beth Shemesh were so distraught that they sent to the nearest big city to have men come and take their ark away. 
They feared the ark because they didn't understand how to live with the ark in their midst. It's a shocking and it's a tragic event. And it's another reminder that a holy God must be approached through the means he has established. Seven months have elapsed since Eli and his sons were judged and the ark taken captivity and the city of Shiloh destroyed. But during these seven months, Israel has not turned back to God in repentance. These men of Beth Shemesh were, were Levites and they were responsible for knowing how to handle the ark. In fact, detailed instructions were given on how to handle the ark when it's moved from place to place. But their failure to know and to understand how to give proper weight or honor or respect to the Lord was a costly mistake. And this celebration for these Beshemites was over as quickly as it started, leaving the people to ask the question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Once again, this chapter has another question of profound significance. In the immediate context, the answer is no one in Beshemesh, and so they sent to find someone else in a faraway city. Someone who might stand before the Lord. But you know that the ultimate answer to this question points to the great high priest. The one who entered into the holy place with his own blood to to secure eternal redemption for all who would believe. And so as the ark was not wanted there, the men from from Kirath-Jerim, took came and they took the ark to the house of Abinadab, where Eleazar was consecrated to minister before the ark as a priest. And there the ark would remain in his care for the next 20 years. Well, as we think about this passage, I want to spend our last few minutes together to point you to some things that we should know as we attempt to apply this to our lives. And then I want to give you a brief story that illustrates these truths. The first thing that we we need to see here in this passage is this. We must see a holy God to truly see our sin. We must see a holy God to truly see our sins. As humans, we are so good at comparing ourselves to the people around us. But as fallen humanity, it's not a good measuring stick to measure yourself against the people around you. The way to get a true gauge, a true understanding of of how actually sinful we are is to measure ourselves against God. And when we think about this, a passage like maybe Philippians 2 comes to mind. You remember Philippians 2, uh, verses 9 through 11. It says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is Jesus, right? So God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And so as we we think about how do we compare ourselves to the people around us? How do we see ourselves in relationship to the glory of God? Though this passage is familiar, 
where Jesus Christ is presented as Lord and everyone bows, right? We quote this quite a bit in our Christian circles. But as we think about this verse, did you ever wonder how God got everyone to bow down? Was it like, all right, you can bow now? Because it's like, in earth, under the earth, heaven, how do we know? How do we get them to bow down? One, two, three, go. But it's this, as I think the answer is, is here for us, and we, we, we just read past it. It says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. So when God reveals Jesus, gives him a name that's above every other name, everybody sees it, and they immediately bow down before him. His glory is so great that you cannot help but fall upon your face as you see yourself in relationship to the glorious Christ. And as Christians, the more light we see, the more our sinfulness is revealed. The second thing that we should be aware of as we we think about this passage is we must believe that God has provided the perfect high priest. We must believe that God has provided the perfect high priest. Thomas Goodwin writes, We own our standing in grace every moment to his sitting in heaven and interceding every moment. You know, Jesus, when he came to earth, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And as we think about the suffering of Jesus, we often think it started when he was betrayed and headed to the cross. But I would suggest to you this, that the suffering of Jesus began the moment he came to earth. The moment he took on flesh and began to dwell among us, that's when the suffering began. He sympathizes with us in our every weakness is because he suffered like we did in every moment of his life. He, he understands the degree to which we have suffered. He understands us to a degree that we cannot even comprehend. And his death on the cross was a culminating moment. A fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice at the hand of God who was heavy Upon him. He became a curse in our place, bearing an awful weight of sin so that we might be reconciled to God. That the sinful hearts of stone that we had might be removed and we might be given hearts of flesh. And those hearts of flesh, he has written his law upon our hearts. We've been given the promise that God will not dwell in the midst of his people in houses built of stone, but that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The third thing that I would encourage you to answer, you must answer the call. In the same way that as Isaiah bowed before the Lord, was cleansed, and then the question was asked, who will go and whom shall we send? And his response was, here I am, send me. 
He had seen the glory of the Father. He had experienced the atonement for his sins. And now his task was to go out and to tell of the glory of God. And as we think of all of the things that this could entail for the variety of people sitting here in this room, I believe the Apostle Paul gives us a good picture of what this looks like of answering the call. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. This is a prayer that Paul prays, but I believe this is a great model for us. He says this in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Colossians. And so, from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's how we answer the call. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. We are to be, as Christians, we are to be constantly learning through reading our five pages a day. (laughs) Through constantly reading through the Bible, through studying, through meditating on scriptures, through memorizing scriptures. And as we do these things, we're able to converse with God through prayer, bringing our petitions and supplications to him. And why are we to be doing all that reading and praying? Well, so that we'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The scripture teaches us the way that we should go. And by partaking the word of God, we gain knowledge to navigate the treacherous track of life. By his word and through prayer, we put, we put on Christ and we put off the old man. So that we might live worthy of the Lord. Well, how do, you, how do you know if you're living worthy of the Lord? It says this. It says you're bearing fruit. As Christians should be characterized by love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Our lives should be characterized by grace and a willingness to speak of that great mercy that we've experienced through Jesus. Well, but you say, well, how, how long are we supposed to do this? Well, We are to endure with patience, characterized by joy, full of thanksgiving, because the Father has called us to share in his great inheritance until we're called to partake in that inheritance. You remember, he's gone to prepare a place. And he will return to take us where he is. Well, I promised a a story to illustrate this. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark. And let me illustrate this with one brief story. Mark chapter 
to give us context, we'll start in verse 1 and then we'll jump down to verse 9. Verse 1. They came, that's Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound in shackled with chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had been able to subdue him. Verse 9. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of him and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbered about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And they went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What shall we do with the glory of God? I think we've seen a few examples this morning. And I hope that if you experience this life-altering vision of Christ, seeing his glory, you too will be like this man who is willing to go home to his friends and tell them how much the Lord has done, and how much mercy he has had on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we asked at the beginning of this time this morning that that as we behold your face, that the things of this earth might grow strangely dim in the lights of your glorious grace. And Father, we, we ask that you continue to shine your great light on us, so that we might see your glorious works, and we might turn to you, seeking you, serving you, and glorifying you with our lives. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.